So this is our first Advent um, uh, service. This is the Hope Week. And uh, normally what I would do during Advent is, is go to the lectionary. That's what we did last year. That's my plan is, uh, is, to, uh, is to follow the lectionary through Advent because, um, you know, the vast majority of the churches around the world are doing that. So it's just a neat chance to, um, to kind of sink in with all the rest of the church, talk about the same passages they're talking about. The lectionary goes through a three-year cycle, and so uh, you, you'll do a series of scriptures that prepare you for Christmas, and then um, the next year you do a different set, the next year you do a different set, and then you cycle back to year A. So it's, it's, a, it's a neat thing to do, and, and you're, like I say, you're just kind of in sync with the, the bulk of the body of Christ when you do that. But this year was a little different, because this year um, two of the passages came from Philippians, and as I was meditating on those and, and kind of getting them into my... Spirit, I just fell in love with the book of Philippians again. So I, I'm going off script this year. I'm, I'm changing everything and we're just going to stay in the book of Philippians. So this is actually going to be kind of a, a quick survey study um, through the book of Philippians. And what got me was how emotional this book is. Like this, I don't know how many of you know Philippians well, but it's, it's by far Paul's most emotional book. In Bible college, I taught uh, Paul's epistles. So I got pretty familiar with Paul's voice. Um, and the way he writes and sounds, and uh, and even back then, it always shocked me how different this book was. When you when you really spend a lot of time in Paul's letters, Philippians kind of comes out of nowhere because it doesn't feel like typical Paul. It's a very emotional, friendly, relational book, and so it just quickly um, started to feel uh, maybe Christmassy as I got into the the kind of lovey dovey aspects of of the book, and so I just decided to stay here. And uh, and Paul's connection makes sense. I mean, we actually, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Lyman Beecher. I don't know how many of you remember, but at the end, we talked about Lydia, the seller of purple, um, where Paul uh, can't find a place to go. He tries to find a couple cities in Asia Minor to, to go and preach to, and, and the Holy Spirit keeps kind of stopping him, keeps saying, no, don't go there, no, don't go there. And... Uh, uh, and so I, uh, this just popped in my head, i got to share it, it means nothing, but um, the letters that John wrote to, the churches that John wrote to in Revelation, are all right there where Paul, um, where Paul was trying to get into. And so every time I read that, I feel like it's a turf war, like John is going, no, that's my, those are my churches. And so Paul couldn't go because that was John's territory. But I doubt it was that way, but it's fun to think about. So... He's wondering what to do. He has no idea where to go and no idea what to, what to do. And, and one night he goes to sleep and has a dream about somebody in Macedonia, which is Philippi, um, on the other side of the Aegean Sea over in Europe. The, Bible, the gospel hadn't gone to Europe yet and uh, saying, come and help us. And so without a second thought, Paul jumps on a ship. He and his team head over and they get to Philippi and they land and there's no synagogue which Paul's kind of go-to move was to start in the synagogue and preach and then go out from there. And there's no synagogue. He doesn't know what to do. And so at the normal prayer time, he goes down to the river, which I guess was kind of typical for, for Jews. And he found a little group of Jews praying. And so he kind of jumped in and, and uh, said, hey, can I tell you something? And starts talking about Jesus and gets a favorable response. But there's really one convert that we know of, and that's Lydia. And she uh, apparently takes Paul and his team back to her house. She was a merchant, probably had some money. And, uh, and we know that while Paul was ministering at Philippi, he eventually gets arrested. He gets in trouble. He's in 
prison and when he finally gets released, there's a big drama. If you know the big famous, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That happens in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer because the, while they're singing worship songs at the end of, in, in the middle of the night, an angel comes and sets him free and the jailer is so distraught that they got loose he was going to commit suicide and Paul stopped him and said, hey, we're still here. He's like, what do I do to be saved? And, and so anyway, they get, finally get released. It's a kind of a big drama and it, it says that Paul goes back to Lydia's house and gives a blessing to the whole church. So we know from that verse that the entire church was in Lydia's home, that she, she kind of houses it. And, um, and so Paul, all of this happens in Philippi. And so this is the book. All of this is kind of the beginning of Paul's relationship with them. And so they're kind of his first European converts. Um, they, they took him in and housed him and housed the church. So this is, there's kind of a coincidental connection between Paul and the Philippians. Um, this kind of, you know, kind of monumental that you were my first church in Europe. So that probably says a little bit about the emotional connection that he has. But, um, but there's more. Uh, because when Paul was released from prison, he was allowed back to the church. And, and this, we, we kind of read this like it's no big deal, but if you imagine, so Paul comes in, he starts a new movement. He kind of shows up in Philippi and says, hey, there's a new king. Um, his name is Jesus. I know you guys all um, follow Caesar as your king, but there's a different king. And, um, and, and people start buying into it and they start accepting this message that there's a new king and a savior and, and they're buying into it and immediately Paul gets arrested. And they don't really know much about anything at this point. So if you imagine if I had a guest preacher here and he came and he preached a compelling message and you're really into it and the police show up and handcuff him and while he's out, he's like, seriously, no, this is all good. I promise, don't pay any attention to what they're doing right now. The message is solid. Like, can you imagine how like confusing that would be? Like, do we really want to get involved with this dude? Do we really want to tie our lives to this guy who is in prison because of the message he just gave to us? Like, it would have been super, super easy to just go, that was a close one. We could have easily got caught up in that mess. Let's split, disband. And, uh, but they didn't. Instead, uh, they, they continued to pray for Paul. Most likely, I don't know, back in, in Paul's day, when you were arrested, your captor did not feed you. So when you were thrown in prison, you weren't thrown on the state and they were going to keep you, you know, three hots and a cot um, while you were in prison. It didn't work that way back then. Your, your family had to bring you food and stuff. Otherwise, you just starved in prison. You weren't taken care of by your captor, by the state. And so um, most likely, because by now they're across the Aegean Sea, they're a long way from, from Antioch. They're a long way from Jerusalem. They're a long way from any support group Paul might have had. Um, and yet he made it through this imprisonment. So most likely the Philippians were um, even supporting him while he was in prison there. And we know they continue to when he gets arrested later. That's actually what this book is about. Um, and we'll get to that. So um, just the fact that they stuck with him, just the fact that they uh, didn't um, uh, kind of break up and flee the second he was arrested creates another connection with Paul. So he's got this kind of emotional um, connection. And then despite their small size, as a small church, um, and he refers to him several times as being an impoverished church, not having much money, being a poor church. They become one of his biggest supporters. Um, in Corinthians, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he said, He's, he's kind of talking about the fact that he never took money from them, from the Corinthians, which was, Corinth was a wealthy, um, 
town, and, and as far as we know, the Corinthian church was very wealthy as well. Um, he never took money from the Corinthians. He even tells the Corinthians later, I took money from the poor Macedonian church, Philippi, the Philippian church, so that I didn't have to ask you for money. Like they supported me while I'm preaching, you know, to you. Um, when Paul goes on his third missionary journey, it's to, uh, to raise money. There was a famine back in Jerusalem and they were hurting. So they send out some people to raise money to bring money from all the other churches back to Jerusalem because they were hurting. And Paul is the one who kind of goes on the journey to go to all his churches and round up money um, for them. The book of Second Corinthians is kind of a, a preliminary letter. He sends it ahead of time saying, hey, I'm going to come get some money. Make sure you've got it ready, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he brags to the Romans that, the, that one of the most supportive churches was the Philippian church. The Philippian church uh, pitched in the most to this, this offering for the, for the impoverished Christians back in Jerusalem. So these people share Paul's passion. He, he actually says in this book that they're partners in spreading the gospel. He refers to them in chapter 1 as partners in spreading the gospel. Um, and we've all experienced this. Have you ever known somebody who is passionate about the same things you're passionate about and how quick and easy it is to make a connection? Um, I know, I mean, Bill and I, relatively speaking, haven't known each other that long. But I think in our very first conversation, we went through maybe six or eight different philosophers and just like we were just hooked forever. Bill, I, I count Bill one of my best friends because he's one of the people we now send each other totally dorky memes that I, I seriously, I sent him a meme this week that had a slide that on the edge of the slide, it said, trying to come up with a metaphor for the Trinity. And at the bottom of the slide was a big hole that said heresy. And so, and I've shown 20 people that meme and they all go, I don't get it. And I was like, yeah, I sent it to Bill and he was like, yeah, that's a good one. Like, but, so I know I can throw all my dorky stuff at Bill and he gets it. We've, we're passionate about the same things and that forges a connection. And I think Paul had that with the Philippian church. He, they, they immediately caught his passion for spreading the gospel. And any time Paul needed um, a team, any time he needed support, any time he needed anything, the Philippians were right there. They were, and it, and it wasn't, uh, I don't think it was because of anything other than they got it. They just got it. They, got, they were passionate about the same thing Paul was passionate about. And because of that, um, he was sweet to them. He just was. He, he, his, his tone and his... Language was completely different. But there's another reason. Um, and this is the one I talked about, that uh, in this letter, it's actually, um, this is kind of a response letter to it. This is a thank you note, if, you, if we want to be completely honest. Paul had been arrested. Some people say he was arrested in Ephesus. Um, some say he was arrested. This was his final arrest in Rome. There's some debate amongst scholars there. But wherever he was, um, they had sent him a care package. Again, uh, whoever arrested him would not have been feeding him. And so they sent him a, a care package. I don't know if it was money so he could buy food or if it was actually food, but um, they sent him a care package and, and he sent back this note, um, this letter that we now have in our Bible. He sent back this kind of thank you um, note. And it's kind of funny. We'll get to there in chapter four, but he's like, hey, thanks so much for the gift. Not that I needed it. Like it's, it's a real weird thank you note, but we'll have fun with that when we get to it. Anyway, um, and so these people are, are literally meeting him in the trenches. They're literally, he is in hell, um, and they're there with him. They're, he's in prison, uh, and Roman prison was no, you know, small thing. And they're right there um, with, him, with him. And so this connects Paul to this church. So all of this preliminary stuff to say, 
Paul really, really, really likes this church. So, um, so he writes this kind of sappy, emotional letter, kind of like a Hallmark card. Um, and, uh, and it, and it kind of, as I was reading it, because Paul is away in prison and, uh, you know, and they're communicating, it had that like coming, like I'm, I'm hoping to make it home for the holidays feel as I was reading it, like that separated for the holidays and all of those, you know, I'll be home for Christmas songs started coming to my head while I was reading it. And so it started to feel like a, like a good Advent book. So, Let's open with some of the emotional language. If this thing's going to talk. Of course it's not going to talk. Why would anything talk tonight? What's that? Thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy. Whoops. There we go. Um, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue His work until it is finally finished, on the day when Jesus Christ returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you, with tender compassion of Christ Jesus. So you hear it? You hear the tone that it's like, especially if you've ever read Corinthians where like right off the bat, he's like, I have something against you. And the whole book like becomes about this corrective. Like I've heard that you guys are splitting up into groups and blah, blah, blah. And, he, and, and this one just starts totally different. Ephesians is, he has this gigantic theological statement that opens the book. And you can tell this is, you know, this is a, like a kind of an impersonal teaching thing. And then Philippians, he comes out and he's like, man, I just cannot tell you how much I love you and how much I love praying for you guys. And, and like, so the tone is completely different. Very, very affectionate. And he pours it on pretty heavy. But there is a little bit of a funny shadow here that we've got to pull out because he says, I am certain that God who began a good work in you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. And this is like... This is a good verse, and we use it all the time. We quote it, and we've kind of blessed teenagers with it when they graduate. And I know God's going to finish this work, and we use it as a promise when somebody kind of walks away from God. I know God's going to finish the work he started. But if you imagine yourself being the original readers, like, so they've sent Epaphroditus. You know, they've packed him full of this care package. They've sent him to Paul, and he gets there. And, and of course, they're hoping for some news on the way back. You know, and so the... The Epaphroditus makes it, but we find out Epaphroditus was really sick when he got to Paul. Paul waits for him to get healthy, sends him back, gets back. You get your letter, and somebody opens it up and starts reading. And the guy says, man, I really love you guys, and I just believe that God is going to go ahead and take care of you um, and finish the work he started. Can you imagine? It's like, it's like your spouse you know, calling you on the phone. Hey, I was just in a car wreck, and I just want you to remember I always love you. And you're like, hold on, how bad is this wreck, right? So Paul comes out with this this kind of, you know, I hope you know I always love you guys, and um, and I just believe that God is going to finish what he started with me. And so the, the book kind of has this kind of hanging tone um, that doesn't, like that probably didn't sound as positive to them as it does to us. We use it like a promise of, of, you know, that God's going to do these things. It probably sounded to them like Paul was saying, 
Um, I'm not going to make it much longer, but I believe God is going to continue to work in you even after I'm gone. I think that's probably the way they would have read it. Um, but the main point is that Paul obviously uh, loves these people. And so then next he prays for them. It's a beautiful prayer. You should totally read it. It's great. You should pray it over people. We don't have time to do it tonight. So we're going to move on and jump to verse 12. It says, And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Jesus. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach uh, about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know that I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter whether their motives are false or genuine. The message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. This actually felt very Christmassy to me because I used to have this argument with my mentor um, who he loved Christmas and, and, and he used to marvel that uh, you could turn on secular radio and hear people singing about Jesus. And he was like, this is the most amazing time of the year. You just you could put it on a, a, a station that last year was playing like dirty sex music. And now they're singing about Jesus. Well, how could you not love Christmas? And I was like, nobody listens to this music for the right reason. They're not listening to this. for They're waiting for Santa. Like, and I would, so we would have this big debate. I was like, that makes it even grosser that it's now on secular radio and blah, blah, blah. He's like, no, it's amazing. And, uh, and this was the verse he would always go to. I'm just glad Jesus' name is getting out. Whatever the motive underneath it, whether it's to celebrate Jesus or just to celebrate Christmas, I'm glad. And so he would always quote this to me and, and win. Um, but... Uh, but Paul dives into this part of the letter, um, and this is the part that the Philippians were probably most interested in, the kind of news part, like how, is, how are you doing? How are things going? Are you, are you healthy? Are you doing okay? Um, how are things? And Paul's answer is, hey, the gospel's doing great, which is kind of an evasion. Like it feels like they're, they want to know how he is, and he's like, hey, just want you to know the gospel's fine. It's doing great here, um, which is... Uh, feels like he's not really giving a true answer, but I have a feeling um, for Paul, this was the true answer. Like this was the, this was the only thing of value. Like I remember as a high schooler um, learning that Slash, anybody know who Slash is? He was Guns N' Roses guitar player, like it's amazing guitar player, um, that he had his fingers insured with Lords of London. Like it was a big deal as news for a while for like millions of dollars. So if he smashed his finger in a car door and it was ruined, he would get like a huge insurance claim for it. And come to find out a lot of like there's some model, like not long ago, some model had her legs like insured um, that if her legs got messed up, you know, so it's a, it's a weird thing. And it's, and it's funny how the thing that's most important to you um, you will ensure and take care of. And I, I kind of felt that way when I was hearing Paul say this, like he's in prison. These are the people that love him and are worried about him and want to know if he's about his health, about his well-being, about how he's doing. And he what he sees is 
um, the one thing that's important. Like imagine, because prison, we don't get it. When you're Paul, your entire identity is wrapped up in being the traveling evangelist. Like that's what you do. You move from town to town and start churches. That's what he has done. So prison is like a big deal. Like to be locked up and no longer be able to do what you do. Like have you ever seen like a college athlete take a terrible, terrible injury and it like has a weird import because you're like it's not just his knee that he hurt. It's like his future that he hurt. Like, oh my gosh, like this kid would have, who knows how far he would have gone and now it might be over. That's like Paul. Like it's like, to, to imprison Paul, of all people, the guy who travels the world starting churches, is a huge deal. And so Paul's answer, I think, is pretty telling as to who he is, because his identity is wrapped up in this thing he does, which is spread the gospel. And so when they're like, hey, how are you doing? And his answer is, the gospel's still moving. It's still going okay. I'm still me, <laughs> and the word is still spreading, and it's good. So... Um, so being locked up, uh, especially when you're the guy who changed, you know, Palestine, Asia Minor, and, and now Greece, you know, you're the one who is turning the world upside down. Um, to be locked up, it's kind of a big deal to say, no, the gospel's still happening. It's still going forth. It's still, everything is still okay, um, is, uh, is a big answer. Um, and then he brings up this this concept of of who's preaching, and this is this is something we struggle with all the time. And I don't feel like the church has ever really gotten it. Um, and some people think that when he says, "Hey, some people are doing this out of bad motives," that um, you know, some people think it was the Judaizers who had a tendency to follow him around and try to get everybody to get circumcised and and follow the the Jewish law um, in order to become Christians, like the the kind of mosaic and what we call the cultic law. Um, the ceremonial laws in order to become um, a Christian. But it's hard to imagine they followed him all the way across the Aegean Sea. This was quite a journey, um, but it might have been. Um, some people think it was Christians who were um, kind of staying in bed with the Roman government, maybe. So they were preaching the um, they were preaching the, the savior aspect, the salvation aspect of the gospel, but not necessarily the kingdom aspect. They were still okay with, key, with Caesar being the king. Um, they, they might have laid off some of the strong language like Jesus is Lord, which was a very political thing. Basically a way of saying, um, hey, we're, we follow Jesus too and we're not in jail. Like a way to kind of make Paul look bad. Like, hey, we found a way to preach the gospel and get along with everybody um, I don't know why that radical can't, can't settle down. You can totally be a Christian and still get along, you know, with, with, uh, with the government. Um, some people think it was, it was a group like that. Some people think it was just people talking about Paul and talking about, you couldn't talk about Paul without talking about why he was arrested. You couldn't talk about why he was arrested without bringing up Jesus. Some people think it was probably just coincidental talk that was going on. But what I do know is that Paul says, um, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. That's all that mattered to him. Like he wasn't—he wasn't consumed with um, with what the other side was doing. And, and I feel like we struggle with this because we're like, yeah, but they speak in tongues. They're like, yeah, but do they talk about Jesus? Yeah, but they're name it and claim it, and they, you know, they ask for people's money, but do they talk about Jesus? 
Yeah, but they have a statue of Mary and they ask her to pray for them. But do they talk about Jesus? Like Paul seemed to feel like, hey, the gospel is getting out. But they're a big church. But they're a small church. But they're a... And Paul was like, if the gospel is going out, I'm thrilled. Like, yeah, do I wish everybody had perfect sound doctrine like I clearly do? Of course I do. Of course that would be awesome. Do, do we, do we, is, it, is doctrine important? Is it important to believers? I think yes, it is. But I don't know that we need to... I, I, my personal opinion is 90% of the people pick a church based on relationships and personal taste. The music, the liturgy, the, the way things look, blah, blah, blah. And then, once they're in a place where they feel comfortable, then they pick on that other stuff so that they can say that church over there isn't good. I mean, I, I don't think many of us sit down. Some of us do. I know a guy who did. But so, not many of us sit down and go, here are my theological guidelines. I need to find a church that fits me perfectly. Usually we fall in love with people. We fall in love with church and we find ourselves, you know, disagreeing with some things and agreeing with other things, but totally willing to do church together, which is awesome. So I don't understand why we have to pick on the other guys who are doing things differently than us. If the gospel is going out, the gospel is going out. That seems to be what Paul is saying. Sound doctrine is important, but ultimately we want to see the gospel goes out. I completely lost my place here. Did I skip a slide? I think that's what happened. Anyway, um, so here in verse 12, that's where we're at up here. Uh, something really important happens from this passage. I think this is going to actually inform the rest of the, the chapter, which is a big deal. He says, I, I want you to know, dear, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news. And, and I hear a hint of Joseph in this, remember at the end of Joseph's story, when his brothers came to him, he was like, hey, I know you sold me into slavery, but God did all of this so that I could be in this place for saving the people. It all worked out for the good. And Paul, obviously being a Jew, would have had that story just in his DNA, would have heard it from a very, very, very young age. And so I think, I think some of that is in Paul here, where, where to him, um, choosing to believe... Because obviously this is a guy who was just bouncing from town to town, starting churches. He would come back through and establish elders and pastors. I mean, the, and the church is, is flourishing. And now he's in prison. And he's basically choosing to believe that this is exactly what God wanted. And, and, he's, and he's choosing to rejoice in the little places where the gospel is taking root, wherever he is, most likely Rome, but wherever he is. And I think that uh, this becomes key in this, in this next passage where he says, For I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, that this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. But if I live, I can do fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better 
that I continue to live. And this is a classic passage. To live is Christ, to die is gain, was the way I originally memorized it. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But I think this passage plays out very differently than we classically interpret it. Maybe not interpret it, but, um, but take it in. Because we, we kind of make this passage um, very zen. Like Paul is totally content with either. Like I'm totally fine if I live. I'm totally fine if I die. Like if he, we make it really, we sanitize it and make it sound as though he doesn't care either way. If you read 2 Corinthians 1, um, he talks about uh, maybe this time period. A lot of people think he's talking about this time period. Uh, for we do not, uh, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, uh, of the affliction we experienced. Um, for it was so utterly burdened beyond strength that we despaired of life itself. That he's and he, he talks about how we we thought we had had the sentence of death on us. Like he was. So Paul's not being a robot. He's not being like some kind of Zen master where it doesn't matter what happens. I'm just totally. I'm so totally content with the with the will of God that I'm totally okay going either direction. I don't think that's what he's doing. If you if you read the words. He says, I am torn between two desires. I am completely torn between two desires. And, and this, this feels real to me. Like, and, I, and I can't even imagine because it, it's like I want a cheeseburger and I want pizza. And I'm fully torn between two. Like, it never is it like whatever. It's like I desperately want both of these things. I'm utterly, and sometimes it's I want a cheeseburger and I want to lose weight. And, and usually I opt for the cheeseburger. And Esther's like, well, obviously you don't want to lose weight. You're like, but it feels like I do. <laughs> like, I really do. But I also really want the cheeseburger. I'm, I'm torn between two. It's a battle. And we know it is. Paul is not like, eh, I'm aloof. Whatever. Whatever. The Greek phrase means I, I'm completely captured and preoccupied utterly between both things. It's, a, it's one of those words where... It, it took like four English words to make up the one Greek concept. I am captured and preoccupied completely and utterly between both. This is not 50-50. This is 100-100. I think this is important to pull out of this passage because, you know, you know what I feel when I pray for the will of God? When I pray for God's will in my life? I feel completely torn between two desires. Because the reality is I do want God's will in my life. I do believe with all my heart that whatever God wants for me is the absolute best thing that could be for my life. It might be painful, but I believe it is the best thing that could happen to me. I utterly believe that, what, that, that God knows better than I do. Also, I really, really want what I want. I really want my way. I feel broken and disappointed when my prayers aren't answered. Even, even if I know in some part of my brain this might be the will of God, this might be the best thing for me, it still completely breaks my heart. I am utterly torn between two desires. This is, there's, nothing, there's nothing passive or mellow about praying for the will of God. Praying for the will of God in your life should tear you in half. It should, be, it, it should make you go, I am utterly torn between two desires. This is des- what I want desperately more than anything in the world is this thing. And yet at the same time, I want the will of God and it may not be that thing. And, that, and, and I think Paul is describing tor- like the, the torment of wanting both. 
I want to go be with Jesus, but I also want to continue this mission that he's put me on. We are not machines. We get angry when we don't get our way. And that's okay. We're human. We could admit that we don't like not getting our way and, and still stay sincere and, and true to the fact that we want God's will in our life. It's okay to want both. Like, unfortunately, most, most of the time we talk about the will of God in our life, we think you're supposed to, that it's some way to switch off our emotions. It's some way to say, you know what, I just want the will of God in my life. And, and, and somehow this, this deep burning passion inside of us will go away if we just say, I just want the will of God in my life. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. It's not that way. We're humans. We have deep and passionate desires. So please don't ever use this passage to, to be Zen. It's, it's not a Zen passage. It's a struggling passage. It's a, it's a real human complex passage. But I think there's something else here that's, that's easy to miss. Um, Paul's conclusion, uh, which is actually the next verse, is this. Nope. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come again, you will be have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. So if you're looking for a trump card and you don't know what you want, it's it's whatever would bless other people. It's it's the if, if you're stuck in that brutal wrestling match um, of being torn between two desires, ultimately Paul decides to sacrifice what he wants for whatever is good for the other. He, it's, it's basically a cross. He says, I really want to go be with Jesus. I really want to uh, do this thing. I really want what I want. But ultimately, I would rather serve you. Ultimately, it's better if I come and, uh, and, and bless you and, and teach you. So he, he kind of lays down in this tug of war, lays down his will for the other. So let's bring this back to Advent. Because this is, whoops, nope, that's not what I want. Sorry. Let's bring this back. Because um, this is Hope Week. And this, uh, and this chapter um, is about hope. Because, because Paul is, is in prison and he has something that he, he wants. And I, and I think looking at this, this chapter in light of hope is what made me fall in love with this book um, as an Advent book. Because it felt like a more authentic look at hope than... Uh, than some of the ways that I've normally taught it in the past. I've normally taught it in the past like this, this encouragement, like we, we try to muster up hope, we try to build up hope. And, and this, this book made it feel different. Because Paul's in prison, um, and the Philippians are obviously praying for his release. They're leveraging what little money they have um, to keep him alive, hoping that, that, uh, that he might you know, be able to come back to them. And Paul um, answered this hope with, I'm not really sure what I want. <laughs> like, can you imagine if you rounded up all your money to keep him alive so that he could get out? And his answer was, you know, I don't even really know what I want. I don't even know if I want to get out. I'm kind of ready to go home. Like, and, and, and so it made me realize that hope is, gets tangled up. And my first thing is hope is tension. Hope is always tension. It's, it's kind of in the basic definition. If you're having to hope for something, then you don't have it. And, and the, the fact that you have to hope for it means there's a struggle and that, and that 
Like, you get how it's just kind of built into the definition of hope? We make hope this encouraging thing. Like, there's tons of hope. Hey, don't give up. There's a lot of hope. But the reason you're doing that is because you don't have it yet, and, and despair seems to be lurking. And so the hope is always this, this thing we have to bring in when we don't have the thing we know we desperately need or want. And so hope can only exist in tension. It can only exist. Why would you hope for something you know, if you're holding a delicious cup of coffee, I'm craving coffee right this second, that's what came to mind. If you're holding a delicious cup of coffee, you don't go, man, I hope for some coffee soon. Actually, I usually do that. Even when I have coffee, I'm hoping for another cup of coffee. But if you have something, there's no reason to hope for it. Hope only exists in the absence of the thing you want. And so it's always attention. Hope is always attention. We hope for Jesus to come because we realize the world's broken. It's not the way it should be. We want, we want things to be better. We want things to be more just for those that are marginalized and oppressed. We want um, the, the pain of separation and sorrow to not be there. We, we know that we live in a fallen world and every bit of it seems to hurt a little bit. And things are never, you know, the, our relationships are more strained and stressed and painful than they should be. And we sense all of this. The Germans had a word for this. Um, it, it's singsucht. And we don't really have a good... Um, English translation for it. Singsucht, uh, we generally translate it homesickness, but it's, a, a, it's, an, it's not like a passive, boy, I miss home a little bit. It's like this active yearning and longing for the feeling of home. And, and we can't really translate it great, but when the Germans speak of singsucht, when the German theologians speak of singsucht, it was this feeling of, of, of recognizing how broken things are and also recognizing they're not supposed to be that way. Like, so it's, it doesn't, it's not that, ah, whatever, the world's broken, it's just what it is. You know, it's just, it's not that, it's, there's no surrender in it. There's no, like, what are you going to do? The things are messed up. Yeah, you know, that's kind of what we do when we talk about, you know, this, the, the, how the world is, is sin-soaked and broken. Hey, it's a broken world. Those things happen. No, there's no surrender in sin-soaked. It's the desperate yearning and longing for it to be right. It's, it's taking that brokenness and transforming it into I, I, I want things to be better. I'm hoping for Jesus because I know he'll make things better. It's a longing and a desire. And that tension um, is necessary for there to be real hope. The second thing is hope is a gamble. If, if you're hoping, it means you could lose. It means things may not go the way you wanted them to. You could be disappointed. If you're hoping, there's a risk. Always. It's stepping out on a limb. When Paul, when Paul tells the Philippians, I, I honestly believe I'm going to be set free and be released and come back to you. I have to imagine the second he sent the, that letter out, he had to sit there and wonder, what if I'm not? What if I'm killed? What's it going to do to that poor church's faith if I don't make it? What, what happens if I don't get released? What, what are those poor people going to do I just put it all on the line there and told them, hey, I'm confident that I'm going to be released. I'm confident that I'm going to come back to you and you're going to re- rejoice even more in Jesus because I'm, I'm released to you. It's a gamble. That is a risk. And, it, and it's, not, it's not like faith. It's not because faith, faith plays out a little differently because there's been times I felt like God spoke something to me and told me to tell somebody. And I'm like, I'll look like an idiot if it doesn't happen. Like, what if I say that and it doesn't work out? Then I look stupid. And, um, you know, and, and then what if it, it affects their fate? Like it's, 
it's rational. It's it's like a logical thing, and it's it's self-protective. I don't want to I don't want to look dumb, and so you know, so it takes faith to go. God told me to tell you this, and just like, oh God, I'm gonna look stupid. Hope is different than that because hope involves emotion. Hope isn't just a logical like, what if I look dumb? What if it didn't turn out the way I wanted to? It's like, what if I put all of my guts out there and they and, and get hurt? What if I hang it all on the line? What if I what if I risk really? What if I risk everything and it doesn't happen? It's always a gamble when you hope. It's always a gamble. And lastly, and this is the one that's new to me in this study, is hope is communal. This one kind of grows out of the other two. Have you ever noticed how much tension increases when you share your hope with someone else? Like when you have it inside you and you're kind of hoping for something, it's one thing. When you share that hope and you tell somebody, this is what I'm hoping for, it just seems to turn the dial up. It just ramps it up. Hope is, hope is changed when it's shared. And it feels like more of a gamble, doesn't it? When we, when we share those things, um, it, it feels like a risk because now you've, now you've handed your heart to someone else as well. Like not only do I have my heart tied up in this thing, but I've given it to someone else too. And, and now they're caught up in it. Sharing our hopes and dreams with another person just amplifies them. It turns them up. Increases the tension. It definitely increases the gamble. And, and Paul does that. He, he just wrote his hope. He didn't sit in prison and hope for his own release. He shared it with the Philippians. I believe with all my heart I'm going to be released to you. I believe in all my heart I'm coming home for Christmas. He hung it out there for them. And that's a scary, risky thing. And this is what it meant for the ancient Jews to hope for Messiah when nation after nation was oppressing them. To hold on to hope. This is what it meant to to teach their kids that one day the Messiah will come. When their kids are, are stuck in this broken world and, you're, and you share that hope down. One day Messiah will come. One day the Son of Man will, will come. And keeping that hope alive, passing it down to the next generation. This is the kind of hope that we need. That hope that is shared. This is the kind of hope that holds marriages together when they're a mess. That, that kind of hope that, that, that is risky and tense and it's a gamble. I'm going to have to put my heart back out there and, and who knows what will happen when I share that with somebody else. It's the kind of hope that keeps you in church when you're not even sure if you believe in God anymore. When you're not even sure if, if, if this whole thing is worth it. That's the only thing that can keep you coming is, is hope. And it's, that, it's a, that kind of hope that allows us to, to believe that Christmas can be different, that this Christmas can be different. All of us have been through a lot of Christmases. You know, We know there's no reason to believe this one will be any different in our mind. Like Christmas is Christmas. It is what it is. It, it goes by and then you 
been the first part of next year paying the bills and blah, blah, blah. And this is how we'll respond. The evidence is stacked against us that, that Christmas can be um, peaceful and calm and, and that Jesus might actually show up and do something in our hearts and lives this Advent season, that he might actually arrive and change us, that he might actually do a real work in us. We've been through too many Christmases um, to believe that this one will be any different. Unless we choose to hope. Unless we choose to, in, to engage and say, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to believe. I'm going to get emotionally invested that, that Jesus can do something in my heart this season, this Advent season, that I can, and this isn't name it and claim it, this isn't just say what you want, this is, a, this is allowing your heart to risk the disappointment of hope. This is allowing your emotions to get engaged and say, I really want, I'm, I'm, I really want for Jesus to do something this Advent. I really want him to show up. This isn't just leveraging your faith against God to get him to do what you want. This is, I believe this year is going to be special. I choose to believe, I choose to hope that this year is going to be special. I believe as I quiet my heart and wait on God, he will show up because that's what Christmas is about. It's about him showing up. After 500 years of silence, he showed up as a baby in a manger. So my challenge to us tonight is to hope. And it's a risk. It's hard. Because you might get hurt. I've got no promises. I have no assurances that if you hope, um, everything will work out perfect. I can't do that. I can't say that. Um, But I still believe we should hope. So as we go to the table tonight, I believe it's important to remember that Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly, uh, and he was torn between two desires. He prayed in the garden. He kneeled in the garden and said, God, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He was desperately torn between two desires, the desire for self-preservation and the desire to fulfill the plan God had for his life. And he chose to fulfill the plan that God has for his life. And that sacrifice, the hope, the, the Bible says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He had, he had a, a hope for more. He had a hope ultimately for resurrection. And that's what God did. And so as we go to the table and as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, I pray that it will remind us that nothing is hopeless. The cross proves that nothing is hopeless. Not even death is hopeless. That with God, there's, there's always reason to hope.